It is Thursday, the 22nd of October, 2020, year of our Lord. Yes, what a bastard of a year. But thank you for joining me for live stream number two here in the prestigious fat cave deep below stately Chateau Schittsville. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get Newcastle cheap for buyers here in Australia. Yes. So if you need that, hit me up on the website for that. Okay, so the purpose of being here is obviously to make myself available to you and interact with you if you've got questions or comments and let's face it, they don't all have to be complimentary. You are allowed to let rip and say what you think. I would enjoy filleting those from time to time. I can see a bunch of you in the chat already. I've got a couple of conversation starters here for you as well. The Mazda BT50 this week was awarded five stars. The mighty She-Max to compliment the D-Max, the his and hers you out of the same factory in Thailand. Not much of a surprise with that, I'd suggest, given that the D-Max already had five stars and, hey, it's just a clone, so how differently could it friggin' well crash? So there's that. Uh, the i20N, the uh, worst-kept secret in all of motoring, perhaps the, the Volkswagen Polo GTI killer, that uh, had the covers came off this week as well, and it looks like a bit of a corker, 1.6-litre turbocharged engine. They're calling it uh, all new, but obviously it's probably just an evolution of the 1.6 turbo they already had in the inventory. And I wonder if Albert Beerman will score two for two here against his arch-rival Volkswagen. It'd be interesting. And I wonder how much it's going to be too, because... I'm tipping it's going to be eight to $10,000 more than a bog-standard sort of I-20. That's the same ballpark for the nification of I-30, isn't it? So there's kind of that. Interesting for the delivery driver too, you know. The LDV, the Chinese mob, launched their Deliver 9 this month. And it's up there with the Renault Master. It's a direct competitor for that, but substantially cheaper as well. And I wonder if you'd consider buying an LDV. They're the Chinese company that's really kicking ass this year, which is kind of interesting as well. They're imported in Australia by Atiko, which I'm not sure is a an absolute advantage to the brand, but Atiko has established a foothold for numerous other brands that have then gone and set up independent importers and done, you know, reasonably well for themselves. So hopefully that will take place with LDV. And I'm wondering if you are considering buying an LDV or if you would put one on your shopping list. The other thing, of course, is the i30 sedan, which used to be called the Elantra. That's available for sale now. Not exactly cheap, I'd have to say. And I really do wonder, are sedans dead? You know, everyone's buying hatches or wagons, aren't they? And by wagon, of course, I mean SUV. So, look, with that in mind, as a sort of conversation starter, an aperitif or an appetizer, whatever, an entree, whatever you'd like to call it, maybe you'd like to comment about that or just take charge of the conversational chessboard via the chat feed here and send it your way. So let's kick off with Nathan O'Connor, who says, looking forward to this, John, have you had any thoughts as to the increase of electric cars having charging problems, e.g. self-ignition? See, I don't really see this kind of thing, self-ignition, as a problem with EVs. I, I haven't heard of too many cases of that. It's more of a problem in the aftermath of a crash 
if the battery compartment is compromised because just like a fuel tank spewing fuel all over the road, all you need is an ignition source. And the thing, as I understand it with these lithium-ion batteries, is they're pretty hard to put out once they start uh, once they start burning. In fact, there was one uh, EV in, I think it was Germany, but don't quote me, and they basically had to put the equivalent of a an in-ground swimming pool on a low loader and take it out there and basically submerge the EV in that for transportation in the aftermath of a crash. So maybe that'll be part of the landscape into the future as EVs proliferate. Who knows? The thing I see as being more of a problem with EVs is car companies playing the same old games that they already play with internal combustion, right? You might have a widget in your EV that wears out like some little part of a rotating system that carries a lot of current, all right? And it might be worth, I don't know, 15 bucks. And they're likely to say to you, look, uh, we can exchange that motor for you. You'll need a new motor. That'll be nine grand. I actually think that'll be more of a feature of the EV landscape into the future because, hey, it's the way the car industry rolls. And this will open the door inevitably to specialist independent repairers who go, Hey, mate, don't do that. Don't pay nine grand for an all-new motor. We've got an exchange one here, and we can do that for a few hundred bucks or a thousand bucks, whatever, and they rebuild it on site and replace a few parts. And I think that's how that's going to roll. I don't see EVs as being any more or less dangerous than internal combustion cars are currently, and the same absolutely goes for hydrogen. Now let's move to Paul Davies, who says, Hey, John, in reference to your earlier video, have you seen the news of Toyota's 300 series slated for release soonish? No, I haven't seen that. There's been endless rumours, hasn't there, about the new new upcoming 300 series or if that's what they're going to call it, I don't know that that's even been confirmed yet, but it makes sort of sense given the lineage going back. So it's so crying out for an upgrade, isn't it? I forget how old the 200 series platform is, but it's got to be either 12 or 14 years. If you're a Land Cruiser ophile out there and you'd like to correct me, please do, but it's something of that nature. And I don't even think they've done the facelift thing very well with that car, given the absolute amount of time that it has been with us. They haven't exactly done Joan Rivers with it, have they? Facelifts on facelifts on facelifts. I can't tell the difference, frankly, between a really old one in good condition and the current one. So there's that. They are the king of mediocrity. So I'd be expecting the V8 to disappear and be replaced with the turbocharged six with possibly more performance or at least the same sort of performance. There's no way they'd go backwards on performance, but I just don't see Toyota as the kind of dynamic entity that would raise the bar. So there's that. Um, Let's move on now and uh, talk to oh, Mr. Unpronounceable there, who says, at Jonathan Matthews, out of interest, would you use the Subi Buy Online system to buy it? That's interesting, isn't it? Would you go online now to a car maker website? They're all trying to do it. Kia's trying to do it. Uh, Subaru's doing it. I don't know. I haven't looked at all of the car makers because who's got time? There's about 60 of them. But I'm sure they all want to sideline their dealers and deal with you direct. And by direct, I mean at arm's length online. But would you want to buy a car online? Would you click and pay now and miss out on the opportunity to negotiate the price? Because obviously there's a bunch of fat built into the price and if you don't negotiate, if you buy now, you miss out on any potential savings. And is it worth it? 
That'd be a good question, wouldn't it? Is it worth it in the context of not having to sit there opposite some car salesman trying to keep it classy for a change and you're just sitting there and inevitably you kind of think to yourself, well, how hard am I going to get t- touched up this time? It's it's that kind of equation, isn't it? So I don't know if I'd buy now at this stage. I, I think you'd do better, certainly financially, if you went face-to-face in the tried and true manner against a car salesman. The pro tip there, of course, is if he says to you, this car is $34,990, that's the best I can do, then the pro tip is to just say, well, my girlfriend's going to cut off my nuts if I spend one cent more than 30 grand. So there's your offer. I'm good for it. I'm prepared to sign on the dotted line now if that car's available. Um, Can we do business or not? And if he goes not, then just shake his hand, walk out the door, thank him for his time and say, look, I'll keep shopping. They hate that. And then you might be amazed how malleable the price gets over the phone down the track, right? But you've got to be strong about this and you've got to sort of not try and be the dude's friend is what I'd suggest there. You could, of course, use us and we take the pain out of that. But some people like the pain. Some people pay, you know, stern German women substantial amounts of money to whip them on a weekly basis, as I understand it. This is a thing. So if you're one of those and you've just got that kind of desire in the automotive domain, hey, Go face-to-face to your heart's content. Knock yourself out, metaphorically. Let's move to Profrumpo. You know, these fake names amaze me. Like, how long did it take Profumpo to sit down there on the couch one night and go, I know what I want my alter ego to be. Henceforth on YouTube, I will be Profumpo. Each to his own. Thoughts on the Volkswagen ID3. If a significant number of us change to electric, how the hell are we going to charge them when out and about? The time to charge and number of stations will be a big problem. I don't think it will, you know, because the pace of change there will be slower than all of the evangelists are saying. It's going to take time for critical mass of electric vehicles. I don't think there'll be substantial choice in the market until about 2023 in Australia, because we are, let's face it, we're on the front foot with all technological adoption, aren't we? And we've got those politicians steering the ship enthusiastically to a shiny new emissions-free future when they're not carrying lumps of frigging coal into Parliament House and trying to tell everyone how good they are. So there's that. But I don't think charging infrastructure is going to be a problem. In fact, I was doing some calculations on this recently and if we got Harry Potter's friggin' wand out, or even better, the mighty king. If we got the magical mighty king out, the king dick, his highness. If we got him out and just changed every car in the nation and made Australia less shit. I haven't got the magical arrows on a live feed. I can only point. Made Australia less shit. If we made Australia less shit by making every car electric, just to see how that went, I think we'd only need about 10% additional power generation capability to adequately service their needs. What's more likely to be a problem is when a bunch of people in a boutique unit complex in some elite suburb, in the eastern suburbs here in the knee of Sid or something, or Turak in uh, Melbourne when that stops being a police state or something like that, on the river in Brisbane, 
places of that nature where well-heeled virtue signalers hang out in a small boutique unit complex of like-minded, nauseating dicks, then it's going to be a problem if they all come home in their Tesla Model S's and plug in and want the fast charge, right? Because the street's not going to cope and the building is certainly not going to cope. So we're going to need, at the very least, smart chargers that are able to balance the load in between all of those demands so that, so that those dudes are not without power in their units because their cars are so thirsty, as it were. So the grid and the local supply and the intelligence of the way that electricity is allowed to be sucked out of the water at particular charging points is a problem. When you're out on the move, of course, various vendors can elect to fit uh, DC fast charging stations. And, you know, it's easy enough to do that. It's just kind of expensive at home because I was talking to some guy who's an expert about that, and he was talking about some extortionate cost per kilowatt for fast charging DC, all right? AC charges up to... um, what is it, about 32 kilowatts or something like that, you can get out of three-phase. It's That's not a problem in terms of the cost for a home installation, even though most EVs can't accept that sort of charge. But, you know, I, I don't see the grid as being a major problem and I don't see the uh, demand for charging while out and about being a major problem because a whole bunch of people are just going to want you to stop for half an hour while you fast charge and shop for whatever. And let's not forget, for the time being, you're going to be a rich dude. Okay, if you've got an EV, because Hyundai Kona Electric is in the Highlander spec, which I guess is the top seller for that variant. It's uh, 72 grand drive away undiscounted. So this is not a poverty purchase. You know what I mean? It's like 50% more than the internal combustion equivalent. So you got cash if you can afford that car. And plenty of people are going to want you to stop for half an hour at their premises so that they can latch onto your black Amex and suck like, you know, Linda Lovelace from that famous movie. So there's that. Um, Let's keep going with the chat here because there's a ton of you commenting and asking questions and I can't possibly get to all of those, but we will give it a red hot crack for the next 45 minutes or something. Uh, I've got Harry, Harry Hardcore. Now that's a name. If you're going to get a fake name, be Harry Hardcore. And say hello to your parents, Mr. and Mrs. Hardcore. I bet they had an interesting... uh, childhood and teenage years they can certainly fight can't they larry hardcore john do you think the japanese price bubble will pop at all they're all ridiculous money at the moment i think the japanese are in uh, between a rock and a hard place right because they're never going to be european Uh, that's pretty clear okay and the south koreans are closing fast aren't they in fact the whole car industry is a little bit like an olympic sprint where everyone's looking over their shoulder you know the europeans are kind of looking over their shoulder at the japanese and the south koreans and the japanese are certainly looking over their shoulder at the south koreans and the south koreans they're looking over their shoulder and going jesus the chinese could be us they could be us only with an accelerated time frame and sort of more capital and potentially more firepower when they get cracking. So it's it's that kind of dynamic, isn't it? But my impression of many of the Japanese car makers, Honda, Nissan, Suzuki, uh, operations like that, they were doing okay 20 years ago, you know, they were doing okay 15 years ago perhaps. But then the global financial crisis hit and it was like they got struck down by Ebola and they have been functionally disabled ever since. Right? They've just not gotten back 
on the bike. Like Honda, for example, like Honda was so impressive in the 90s. I remember buying, uh, not buying, I remember driving all of these Type R, whatever, Type R Civics and CRXs and Type R Integras, and they were just crackingly great fun. Even the S2000, what an awesome powertrain for performance driving in VTEC mode. You could be between 9,000 and 6,000 RPM in every gear all the time if that's how you wanted to roll. And between those revs, the engine was always in VTEC mode and you felt like such a hero. And it was a very engaging car to drive. But when you look today, 12 years down the track or something, Honda is just a shadow of its former self. So... They do charge kind of ridiculous money for some of these cars. And uh, I guess the problem for Hyundai and Kia, who are challengers to the Japanese historically, is that they've kind of caught up now. So there's no excuses for them not being equivalent. And at the same time, they don't really have to offer their products at a discount anymore because they're kind of on an even footing, aren't they? So, you know, you could look at that LDV Deliver 9 that was released just a couple of days ago and... Basically, it kicks off at about 40 grand. And I, I don't know what the price of a Renault Master is at the entry level, but it's got to be 10 grand more than that. So, you know, the Chinese can stand there and go, well, okay, we're not as good, but hey, dude, you saved 10 grand. So the car industry is more like that. And the Japanese are going to have to do something because they've spectacularly failed to innovate and even be very competitive for the past. 12 years and like that's enough you know like nissan come on i mean nissan did some great work with gtr this and gtr that and the patrol is still a good vehicle in fact these are the only two decent cars in nissan's entire in inventory as far as i can tell today certainly they are the only two that i would consider to be a worthwhile ownership proposition albeit for very different owners and obviously the GTR is prohibitively expensive and possibly a better bet if you just purchased it used I think but Patrol's still bulletproof and uh, it's pretty good if you're going to be doing you know that hardcore off-roading certainly the money you save Patrol V Land Cruiser you could fuel a Land Cruiser um, or you could fuel the patrol until the heat death of the universe and still not catch up sort of thing I think the break-even period is like 200,000 k's or something so come on where's the case for land cruiser anyhow moving on tone the inventor of the inventor of the term shemax hashtag respect tone says if ev chargers become smart enough to suck down most of their charge during off-peak hours it'd definitely help with load balancing with the electricity grid that's right i mean i'm not sure that baseload power is absolutely a thing in technical terms but obviously the way electricity works you have to burn the coal to make electricity and if it's not being used at that time you lose it forever okay so they do have to burn some coal at low load times like when we're all in the land of not you know so if evs could be smart enough to be doing their primary sucking at that time then yeah, absolutely. That'd be more efficient, even in the filthiest grid on earth. And by that, I mean Australia. Yes, hashtag patriotism. Now, this is, um, this is unfortunate. Here's a dude who's using an, apparently a real name. That's a breach of the YouTube code of conduct, Dan Wallace. Dan says, hey, John, loving the Q&A sessions. Thank you. Unfortunately, I can't watch it live as I'm in Western Australia and I'll have to look after the little dream killers until bedtime. I'll be sure to watch it later this evening. Well, it's very difficult 
to satisfy the live demands of everyone, isn't it? And Australia is such a wide place vis-a-vis, you know, longitude. We do stretch from here to there and there are, you know, several hours between us and Perth, although Perth is a kind of marvellous spot. What are you even doing home from work at like, what is it, 10 to 6 or something in Perth? You must have it easy. You're allegedly working from home, are you, Dan? Is that how that works? And... Agreed on the kiddies, mate. Very responsible parenting. Do not inflict me on them because I cannot guarantee that this fine show will be at all times safe for kids. And we wouldn't want to inflict me on them and spoil them forever. We'd want them to grow up and go to university, learn to be journalists and have their souls sucked out and be left a withered husk in that sort of more time-sensitive mechanism. To hear that, what happened to the old ones. However, I've been warned of counterfeit tyres flooding the market. What are some of the things to look out for so that I get the genuine item? Well, I'd purchase from a uh, reputable manufacturer for a start. Like, I don't think there's any... I I don't think there's anything in it for someone like, I don't know, Bow Repairs or Bob Jane or, you know, Bridgestone Tire and Brake Centres, things of that nature. I don't think there's anything in it for them to misrepresent the products that they sell. There might be some dodgy backyarder offering you know discount tires online or something and i'm not suggesting that all tire retailers online are dodgy what i'm kind of suggesting here is that uh it's like everything else you know if you buy from david jones or something of that nature then you are not likely to get stuffed around are you so the the bottom line there is you should look for credible retailers and you should also check out the tires before you buy them in particular there are some things to look out for like the age of the tire and in particular you know the age of the tire is there's a 10 or 12 digit code embossed or stamped into the sidewall of every tire and the last four digits those tires are three years old coming up for three years solved dave Um, moving right on now with more of these questions Dr. Graham serious massages for serious results. What you do, but wondered how you would get to test drive any cars from the shit manufacturers. I could not imagine they would hand you one. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? The car industry is really good at having mates who are journalists, right? And all you got to do to be their mate is to say nice things. And the only problem with that is... It's a disservice to the industry. And I have been on the other side of this fence and I've been instructed by people above me at times, and I'm not going to say who or where, but to say nicer things than that because, hey, that's how we roll, you know. And I've also been the subject of conversations about get this clown in line, otherwise we're pulling our advertising. So there's that. So I just made this conscious decision to call it like I see it. All right. And I'm, as far as I can tell, one of the few people who is actually doing that in the industry. And if Nissan or Volkswagen don't want to give me a car, that's absolutely fine with me. Because even if it's fantastic to drive, then what am I going to say? I'm going to say it's everything for most cars, for most owners, right? It certainly is if you're buying a Volkswagen Golf Type R or an i30N or some other performance car, then the drive experience really matters. I think for most people, what they want is a good competitive features set, value for money, reliability, decent support. And on the issue of what's it like to drive, they want it to be really, really not shit. Adequate 
would be good. Adequate to the extent that the car just does what you tell it to without you going, oh, Jesus, this is a bit strange, right? So too, I'm already the anti-Christians. I, I don't see a real wake-up call for the team. Be, uh, that's just gibberish. So thanks for that, digester. <laughs> Marty Kath. Marty Kath. I wonder if that's Marty and Kath. Anyway, with the demise of automotive manufacturing, why doesn't Australia have a kit car industry? Well, because that wouldn't work, dude. I mean, who's going to be building this kit car and how is it going to comply with ADRs and how are you going to homologate it? And what? how many people are going to buy it? And the cost of homologation and all of that stuff divided by the number of people who are going to buy it. It would be like billions of dollars per unit, millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands, I don't know, but it'd be something of that nature. It'd be a huge commercial disaster. And there's no way the cars would be as good as something that you would just buy off the shelf that was put together in a factory using high-tech facilities because they can do superior construction than Trev in the shed. So it's just that the demise of Australian manufacturing sucks and it's a case of gross mismanagement on the auto manufacturer's side on the government side and uh, the one person i don't blame in all of this is you the consumer because consumers buy what they want right the thing about the rest of us is that you know journalists have a role to play because they can advocate for better performance on the part of manufacturers and the government but then those two instrumentalities the government and the manufacturers they need to do the right thing manufacturers need to go you know what people are buying small cars now and suvs maybe we'll build some of them knock me down with a feather and not persevere with these outdated large sedans which predominantly were the bread and butter of manufacturing here you know the manufacturing was out of touch and the government was so stupid it wouldn't even do a contractually binding deal with any of the manufacturers. It was more like a, a boys' club with a bit of a handshake and a nod and a wink. You know, that's ridiculous. And it cost you and I untold billions. So there's that. Um, the, the sort of thing I think Australia should do, incidentally, as your next prime mincer, is maybe we should turn iron ore and coal, which we have by the shitload, okay, maybe we should turn that into steel and export that to countries like South Korea because then we would be adding value to that material here rather than just sending the iron ore for, Christ knows what, 70 bucks a tonne or something to South Korea and coal and all of that stuff and then have them turn it into steel and then have them turn it into cars and send it back to us and all of the value that is added, we export that offshore, okay? Certainly, it would not be too difficult for us to build a steel mill, I think, and export steel in bulk. But we would need absolute political will to do that. And we would need sort of rich dudes who were patriotic enough, uh, instead of stockpiling uh, hydroxychloroquine, we'd need them to actually go, you know what, going to build a steel mill. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. I don't know about you. It's pretty sad, though. R&R Photography says, what do you think of hybrid utes and four-wheel drives potentially coming into the market? Is this something to get into, or do you think it's better to wait for electric or bad energy management voodoo in traffic? You know, stop-start traffic is where you get to recoup the lost kinetic energy, the kinetic energy that would otherwise be lost in a conventional braking process. So the regenerative braking done by electric cars and hybrids pumps that energy back into a battery, at least some of that energy, and you get to use it again to get going. 
right? And you don't do that on the highway. So essentially, hybrids, the hybrid part, the regenerative braking part, the electric part of the hybrid is really just excess baggage if all you're going to do is use that vehicle out on the highway. So for long distance driving, I'd suggest the uh, hydrogen electric vehicle, the fuel cell electric vehicle is probably the go because, you know, you can refuel it in a matter of minutes and the emissions are only water and it's quite an efficient process. You know, fuel cells have been around since at least the Apollo moonshot missions. So it's fairly established technology, but around town, uh, any vehicle will benefit from a hybridization. It's just that utes and four-wheel drives, these bigger vehicles, they're massive, okay? They weigh a lot. So you've got to get a lot of metal moving and then you've got to stop it again, repeat to drive it around the city. And that is intrinsically inefficient. So in that sense, hybridization of vehicles such as that is really just a band-aid, particularly if you don't need such a large vehicle. See, a small hybrid is much more efficient than a big hybrid. And I know someone's going to say, oh, yeah, well, my hybrid's really efficient on the highway. And I'd say that's because it's running the Atkinson cycle dude, because that's the uh, thermodynamics hack that really essentially just closes the inlet valve a little bit late and changes the compression to expansion ratio. So it's a bit of a thermodynamics hack on the internal combustion side. But you can do that Atkinson cycle without the hybrid, right? And the two-liter Kia Seltos, for example, has an Atkinson cycle engine and no hybrid, right? They're, t they're sort of separate things. The actual electric side of things that's only doing its thing around town. So there's that. Uh, let's keep going with the chat here. And thank you very much for participating this evening. There's just a ton of chat and I won't get to everyone. But John Pav says, value add makes sense in all regards. Too much talk of innovation and knowledge nation. Companies that do well always reinvest into R&D. See, the other thing about R&D and knowledge nation and innovation, it doesn't always pay off right? Whereas if you said, if, if, if politics got together with business in a, a non-corrupt way, which would be sort of a red letter day, wouldn't it? But if they did get together like that and have a conversation about what is good for Australia, there's no doubt that you could make steel here. We're not taking a punt on it. We've got the coal, we've got the iron ore. And last time I, I thought about this, all you really needed was a few buildings that are sort of purpose-built for doing that. And the technologies here, we don't have to develop anything. See, it takes a hell of a long time and there is a lot of failure if you're going to innovate your way to the next big thing because I don't know what the success ratio is, but it's got to be, what, 20, 20 fails for every one success or one in 20 is a success and everything else fails. So that's not uh, – if someone wants to take a punt on that, that's fine, but frankly, not with my tax dollars. Build a friggin' steel mill in the Pilbara and export to Asia – all of the steel that Australia can make instead of just sending off, you know, iron ore and coal because we could even have some sort of political incentive to make it attractive to do that because last time I looked, that's what the regulatory uh, apparatus was for, right? To provide broad direction to make shit happen. Wouldn't that be nice? Anyway, let's keep going here. We've got uh, Steve Ashton who says... I am uh, leasing an i30N, but should I keep it at the end of the lease out of warranty cost for a performance car? Well, performance cars aren't 
intrinsically more expensive. But if you drive them like performance cars, then, hey, stuff is going to wear out more frequently. But in a car like the i30N, what's going to wear out? You're going to go through tyres, you're going to go through brakes, you're going to go through maybe clutches, things of that nature. The rest of the bushes might chew out. Think It depends how harshly you treat it, I guess. But the fundamental powertrain seems to be fairly robust you know there don't seem to be too many reports of that failing it's hardly like the focus rs with the spalling bloody um, head gaskets you know with a floating deck on the block and the the cylinders go like this and they spall the head gaskets and you get up one day and all of us you start your car and then instant james bond smokescreen out the black because out the back because you've uh, blown a head gasket like you know bugger that for a joke anywho uh, I think it'd be fine to hang on to that car after the lease, right? And if if there's any doubt, just before you get to the end of the lease and you've got to make that call, then darken the door of a decent local mechanic, uh, one that you trust preferably, who's been recommended to you by someone you trust or in your family, whatever, and just say, mate, can you give this thing, which I'm leasing a once-over because I'm thinking about owning it, but I don't want to do that if it's a ticking time bomb. So that might be a good way to at least manage the risk of that uh, of that problem moving forward. But awesome car, and you'll certainly be happy with it for several years to come, I'm sure. Depends if you drive it like you stole it. Um, best in the biz. No ego problem there, Mr. Best in the biz. Uh, in the market, buying a new dual cab ute, I have narrowed it down to 2021 Isuzu D-Max, X-Terrain Toyota Hilux SR5 and the Ford Ranger XLT. I live on a cattle farm. I plan on some four-wheel driving and camping. Well, here's my, uh, excuse me, my default chat about all of that. I'd suggest that these utes are all closer to each other than the manufacturers would admit. Hilux is going to have the best resale value, but in some senses, I think it's the least sexy of them all, okay? Because I'm not sure you even get Apple CarPlay in a Hilux today. Like, come on. Uh, please, if you own a Hilux and you do, uh, correct me, because I haven't been in a Hilux for some time. But Hilux is going to be pretty good on the resale value front, but, you know, not that great to own. The... Uh, the Navara, I'm not a fan of the way Nissan does business with its customers. They've, they've, there are too many examples of Nissan saying, are you, yes, I know you're a customer, but would you mind grabbing your ankles here? Because that problem you're having with our product is an opportunity for us to profiteer out of you when we could actually, you know, do the right thing. So there's that. D-Max, okay. D-Max hasn't been in the market for really long enough for us really to know whether or not it's a viable proposition, right? So has it got any bugs? How would you know? Okay. The engine is probably bulletproof because it's so close to the previous engine. It's not funny. And they don't fail very often. The six-speed transmission is pretty reliable, but as to the rest of the platform, the electronics, things of that nature, the vehicle certainly hasn't been around for long enough for us to make any uh, judgment on that. Ranger XLT is a pretty honest bus as well, right? Uh, the only problem I've got there is Ford is fairly poor at customer support, but Ranger doesn't seem to be failing all over town. So of those, I think Ranger is probably the most fun and Hilux is probably the most commercially sensible choice you could make. I'm a big fan of the Triton, actually. It depends how much you're 
preparing uh, it, it really depends how much gear you're thinking about throwing in it how heavy the loads whether you'd benefit from that all-wheel drive mode that the uh, that the uh triton offers from time to time as well you can use it in 4h with the center diff unlocked and that gives you a great deal more grip on things like good dirt roads where you shouldn't really drive in 4h with the center diff locked right so that's my two cents worth on that feel free to chime in there on the uh, on the chat if you think I'm getting any of this wrong because you know a bit of diversity there your chats can obviously be seen by other parties to this conversation so if you think I'm getting it wrong let me have it with both barrels and the audience can decide I'm kind of I'm down with that that's cool uh, tone again says last time I checked the cyber truck was going to be a US domestic market proposition only and I say yeah yeah if he actually gets around making one like hey Electric Jesus can do no wrong with the faithful, okay? But he did promise the Tesla Semi oh, two years ago now, right? How many have we seen actually sold? A big fat zero there. The cyber truck was going to be the next best, the next big thing. And I cannot see how they are going to homologate that vehicle as it was shown to the public, right? Because I don't see it complying with existing homologation laws. And it doesn't matter how fantastic that thing is, it's pie in the sky unless he can convince the Department of Transport in the United States to rewrite the rules on homologation. And let's not forget the ADRs here are really hastily once over rebirthed FMVSSs, you know, Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards from the US or the same thing in Europe, the UN ECE regulations. So, you know, a lot of those compliance regulations in the US are the same as here. I just don't see how the Cybertruck is ever going to roll off a line and be retailed to the public looking anything like that vehicle that was shown to us at that atrociously self-aggrandizing uh, press conference. Best thing about the press conference was when Electric Jesus threw the baseball at the Cybertruck to demonstrate how tough it was and it hey, smashed the window. <laughs> yes, I do love those smoother-than-a-baby's-ass productions. They're great. Josh Jameson now. Hi, John. Used your car buying service and ordered a MX-5. Got a great deal. Well, thank you very much for using the service, Josh, and I'm glad we were able to help you. What are your thoughts on this car? Have you driven one? Yeah, I've driven the odd MX-5. In fact, I've driven, I think, every MX-5 since the very first one. And truth to tell, you know, a lot of people think the MX-5 isn't fast enough, particularly the early ones. And I really love the early ones because if you could get on a track and be quick in an MX-5, you were quick, right? If you, if you get a car with too much mumbo and you go on a track... You can be moderately quick, but you're really only compensating for your own inability to exploit the performance of the vehicle in corners by mumbo, right? So you're getting on the gas and you're having a big squirt on the straights in between corners, but you kind of have the opportunity to blow it in the corners a little bit. You can overdrive in and then sort it out, and you'll never be competitive with actual people who can steer really fast, but it'll feel fast to you because you've got to sort out all this stuff in the corners, right? And I have this uh, bad habit of overdriving in um, on racetracks because I don't do enough of it, meaning too hot on the way in. And therefore, it takes just a little bit too long to sort things out. And I've got to keep 
throttling myself back on the way in to actually be quicker, which is counterintuitive when you think about it. So there's that. But anyway, if you can be quick in an MX-5, you are a bloody good steerer because it is such a pure handling experience. And you always know when a car delivers really pure handling because you always want more mumbo, right? It's like driving a Toyota 86 slash Subaru BRZ. You drive one of those things and you always say, you know what, this thing could do with another 30 kilowatts. And it's only because the handling's so precise. So, you know, good choice. I think the MX-5 is A, an icon, and B, a really pure driving experience. So I give that choice 13 points out of a possible 10, but you have to be the right dude to be happy in that car. You have to be a driving nutcase. You have to be happy with a convertible. You have to be happy with no back seat and all of those other limitations, you know. But provided you are, then, ladies and gentlemen, I think we've got a winner. Knight. KNI GHT says, is it just me or has the price of used cars gone right through the roof? Is there hope for a drop in the near future? I need a new ride, but I can't justify these prices I'm seeing. Yeah, there has. Absolutely. It's the perfect storm for trade-ins at the moment. If you've got a car that you need to trade in, the price of used cars is through the roof and it's basically driven by... COVID-19, okay, and the impact of the virus on the car industry, because there are so many delays in supplying new cars that plenty of people in the position where they need a new car now, and I'm suggesting if you've just had your car written off by some numpty who's run up your ass in traffic, then you don't have the luxury of saying, oh, I'll just wait three months until normal programming is resumed, okay? So there is this demand for a new vehicle, new in inverted commas, replacement vehicle or other people who've hung on to the same old shitter for years and it's finally given them the big problem that's going to cost more than its value to solve, okay? So engine blow up, things of that nature, the car's worth five grand, it's an $8,000 fix, someone bites the bullet and says, well, I'll buy a new car and they get to the dealership and the dealer says, yeah, yeah, we can supply that in February, dude. So then what do you do? Well, you buy a late model used car, don't you? And when demand increases for late model used cars, then hey, the price goes up. And that's exactly what's happening at the moment. So my advice there is if you can afford to wait, then absolutely wait because it'll be to your financial advantage. Uh, Anthony Napoli. Now you're a regular Anthony and you're using a real name. So I have to give you more than 10 points out of 10 as well. Um, What do you think of the Kia Stinger? Should you hold off 18 months for something better for a GT? I really like the Stinger. And The Stinger was just such serendipitous timing in Australia for Kia because the advent of the Stinger, like you've got the advent of the Stinger here and you've got the demise of the local sedans, right? The Commodore and the Falcon, they just disappeared. Ford and Holden shot themselves in the foot. Uh, Holden disappeared and if Ford didn't have the Ranger, then Ford would be disappeared as well, right? Because nothing else in the Ford inventory sells nearly well enough to maintain their viability in Australia. So I hope Ranger continues to be successful for Ford because otherwise it's going to be two for two, right? The um, the thing about Stinger is it's a big fat rear-wheel drive product like a Grand Tourer and it looks half okay it looks half tough it appeals to mainly men and that three point whatever uh, twin turbo v6 is a weapon it delivers Atmo v8 levels of performance so 
it's a really nice car to drive a long distance. It's completely different to something like an i30N, for example, which is a, a real chuck-around machine, but the Kia Stinger is a grand tourer in the true rear-wheel drive tradition. And look, if you've got a Kia Stinger and you've had it for, I don't know, two or three years, I'd be really interested to know how it's feeling to you, whether it's got good sort of body integrity, what the reliability has been like, all of those things, because everything points to it being okay at that. But I'd really like to know from a, the point of view of first-hand knowledge of that vehicle from an owner. So if that's you, please let us know what your experience of the Stinger has been, because off the showroom floor, I'm seeing it as damn insects. Spring in Australia. Yes, we've got a bat cave, fat cave full of you know, spiders, every time I record a new package here, I get out the feather duster and one of my favourite tools and uh, knock down all the spiders' webs and the spiders have been eating the insects, of course, and I don't know what the insects eat, but as long as it's not me, I'm, I'm okay with that, I suppose, overnight. Um, let us keep going. Chris M says, John, how many years do you give Jeep Chrysler left in Australia. Their business model and vehicle development is Einstein's definition of insane. Yeah, and they they don't have critical mass anymore. Like, they got up to whatever it was, 30,000 Jeeps got sold one year there recently, like five years ago or something. And now they are just, it's it's an implosion, right? It's It's terrible to watch. It's actually great to watch because... Should we have any sympathy for them, honestly? I mean, Jeep is an icon. I've always enjoyed driving the Grand Cherokee in particular, right? Awesome vehicle. I don't want to own one, principally because I know how they would treat me if something significant went wrong with that vehicle, and that's unconscionable, right? But I've even been thrilled driving Wrangler in various situations, right? Like there was a launch for Wrangler in Tasmania that I was involved with and we did a lot of off-roading in the west coast of Tasmania there and it was friggin' awesome. And I also drove manual Wranglers on the Rubicon Trail, which is like seven miles in seven hours or something like that. And it's all that really grippy granite boulder stuff. It's awesome four-wheel driving and Wrangler's awesome in those conditions. So i got a lot of time for the brand, but not so much for the company and the way it treats people, right? Because they are unethical, right? And they don't deserve to succeed. They don't have critical mass. Their sales are in the, well, they're out of the toilet, halfway to the deep ocean outfall, right? And they're unsustainable the way things are. They brought a new dude in and he's uh, doing what he can. But it's a little bit like, you know, Donald Trump. Like, what can he really achieve as the president, you know? Because presidents can't do perhaps as much as we expect them to be able to do. Prime ministers are the same. They're part of a system. And in many respects, they're like the titular head of uh, various organisations, right? So this new broom, he's doing his thing, but I don't see fundamental change. I really don't. I see fundamental change in the messaging, okay? Big difference. So... I don't give them, unless they're being propped up, they've got to be being propped up from overseas because current sales are unsustainable and there must be some promises or undertakings entered into uh, behind closed doors with the boys upstairs overseas that we can make this right again because car companies are not predisposed to throwing good money after bad. So the clock is ticking on Fiat Chrysler in Australia. It has to be, you know, personal opinion. Uh, let's talk to Chris M now who says, John, how many, oh, we, we just did that. What is this, Groundhog Day? <laughs> how long have I been doing this? Oh, yeah. oh you can make a mistake in, um, 48 minutes and 38 seconds, can't you? One mistake, it's all right. I'm sure you forgive me. 
Jin Suli says, Hi, John. I30N DCT is due to come out next year. Is it still possible to bargain at the dealerships for price? And if possible, what would you recommend between doing it myself or through your business? Okay, well, if you do it through us, we'll just do it for you, right? Uh, it's that simple. That's our job. And what I'd recommend to keep the bastards honest, and by the bastards, I mean me and the people I represent doing this, I'd suggest that you go to your own dealer or dealers and negotiate and get them to tell you the price that you can negotiate, the best price, okay? And keep it to yourself and then contact us and see if we can beat it. Don't tell us the price. If we can beat it, then that's an honest victory and you should go with us, right? And if you get a better price, then just say, thanks very much, but I've got a better price. And hey, then you'll know that you've done an ace job negotiating. Now, if you're not going to do that, Jin, what I'd suggest you do is wait until it's here. So you won't be negotiating the price now and you won't be negotiating the price shortly after the launch because people who've been waiting for the i30N DCT, they're going to be queued up over the friggin' horizon, right? Because they've been waiting for it. They want an i30N, but their girlfriend, their boyfriend, whoever, will not drive a manual, okay? So they've gone, dude, I really want one. I'll wait for the DCT. When it's here, demand outstrips supply. And in that situation, the dealer is unmotivated to discount to you because he can sell that car in his showroom now to that dude there who's gagging for it in the way that you're not because you want to argue the toss over the price. So what that means basically is if you're going for the DIY option, then just wait three or four months until the DCT latent demand in the marketplace has evaporated, supply will exceed demand, and then normal programming is resumed. And normal programming means you can go and be a bit of a bastard in a polite way to the dude who's trying to sell it to you. So that's always nice. Be Rui. Be Rui. Or not. Says... What do you think of electric cars situation where people think more people would be interested if they were like 20 to 30 grand? Do you see that ever happening? Um, economies of scale will have an impact on the price of EVs, but there are some fundamental things with EVs, right? Like the weight, battery technology. I don't see there being a fundamental change that there could be tweaks, right? Efficiency tweaks, but I don't see fundamental change in battery technology. Okay. So batteries are expensive things like go and have a look at the price of a replacement battery for a power tool. You're often, someone asked me about, okay, I don't know if you can see them, all these Ryobi um, drill packs and behind me here. What are you like a Ryobi drill pack whore or something? Someone said to me, um, Brian Howard, I think said words to that effect to me. And uh, the bottom line was, it's actually cheaper to buy the the pack with the the two drill the drill on the driver or something and it's got batteries with it than it is to go and buy a couple of batteries, right? So I just did that. Uh, and and that points to the cost of batteries, right? The battery is the most expensive part of the power tool, which is one of the reasons why they offer you the skin only, okay? So if you've already got the batteries, they can rip a heap of cost out of that next power tool by just selling you the skin. Because the battery's so friggin' expensive. It's just that. EVs are going to be substantially more expensive than electric cars without government intervention. The only thing going to drop the price of EVs to the point of equivalence is like the mad experiment in Norway where 
the incentives from the government made, for example, an e-golf cheaper than a golf. And then there were other uh, incentives as well, like you don't pay tolls and you get free parking in the city and uh, free charging and things of that nature, right? Uh, If there's a level playing field in terms of government support, then EVs for the foreseeable future, and I'm talking a decade down the track, they're going to be more expensive than internal combustion. And that is a fundamental disincentive to the uptake. And that's what we need regulators for, right? They need to bite the bullet if they think. If if there's some high-level decision taken in the interest of the nation to promote EVs, then it's fair enough to incentivise that. And let's not forget the incentivization of this sort of thing is just you and me funding a bunch of people who want to go and buy an EV, right, to get critical mass out there, to get more charges, to do this and that, okay? So that's a matter for the government. But without that support, they're going to be more expensive for forever, you know, forever in the foreseeable context. Um, Tone again says the irony with the Norway experience is that they're funding their generous EV subsidies from oil revenue. (laughs) Yeah, dead right. So there's no such thing as a clean solution, right? One of the problems is we as a species are addicted to energy and there's always trade-offs with the addiction to energy, right? Like, And it's cool to be addicted to energy because we don't have to break our backs for 16 hours a day in a field just to feed ourselves. And I mean only just feed ourselves, right? Like that's what it's been like to be a human being for much of human history. The advent of virtually free energy and this is why i have to laugh when people bitch about the price of petrol and the price of electricity they don't think about what it's liberated us from the the slavery to feeding ourselves you know like go back in history not a few thousand years a few hundred years and have a look what it was like before oil before electricity okay not fun dude not fun okay so there's that about energy. It's a big problem, you know. It's, it's a huge problem for humanity because I don't want to go back to that sort of time just for the sake of emissions. I want to have clean energy and a shit ton more of it than I need. I want access to limitless, clean, almost free energy. And people look at me like, that's unreasonable. And I say, au contraire. We just need the breast. the breast. We always need that, but we need the best brains in the business working on that. Paul Rowley now says, hi, John, love your videos. Thank you, Paul. I'm in the UK, so I wouldn't normally get to watch live, but I am in COVID isolation. Sorry to hear that, mate. There's a lot of that going around. So there is something good in everything. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Paul. I will. And I'm sorry to hear about the isolation, mate. Although, you know, I've been practicing for social isolation for much much of my life and it's finally come in handy in a practical, tangible way and I don't have to apologize for it. So there's that. Marty Kath again says, your workshop background doesn't have one dirty thumbprint anywhere. Do you really have grease under your fingernail? Well, not at the moment, dude. I'm live streaming. I got, you know, I got an appearance to keep up here. But if you actually do look at the tools in detail, you'll see how much dirt there is actually on them. And one of the things was when I turned this into a studio space, okay, it was an opportunity to do a few things defensively. A, get rid of a few really shit tools that I'd had for years and replace them with some fairly nice tools. And B, it was also the opportunity to get things in order. And it's so much better to have things in order. The tool board behind me, right, 
it's designed with first order accessibility in mind. And I've pinched that term from Adam Savage, all right, but he is absolutely on the money with this. First order accessibility is like you're on the bench, you're doing some job. There's been a crisis with the battery friggin' vacuum cleaner and it's like a DEFCON 1, the household DEFCON 1, okay? And the only person standing between you and domestic meltdown is it's you and the tools, right? So you've got to whip yourself into action and you've got something half disassembled and you need a pair of needle nose pliers or a little fine electrician screwdriver or you need one of those little orange clamps just up there and they're all in front of you. So first order accessibility. And then I don't know if you can see those crates. Just um, let me just uh, show you the crates. So those crates just up there, okay, they're like second-order accessibility because they've all got little scribbled text up on them telling me what's in this PPE in one of them and there's, um, there's a random orbit sander and the pads in another one and there's jigsaw in another one and there's, you know, heat gun and there's charges in another one. So they're all organised, but they're things I don't need all the time. So second-order accessibility is fine for them, okay? So this is my evolving multifunction space where I can actually, you know, solve the Mount Vesuvius of, you know, battery vacuum cleaner meltdown, you know, in a heartbeat, go 100% MacGyver when I have to. And, you know, we've got the welder over here and I've got, you know, the bandsaw and the uh, belt grinder over there and I've got the linisher over there and all of that stuff. It's, it's all, you know, deployable. And at the same time, it's also studio space. So studio space has to look half clean and I've got you know, camera set up with a prompter over here and a different lighting set up for the pre-recorded packages. And I'm working on another shot back this way, right? So that we can have a bit of variety in what is actually a fairly limited space. And the plan is early next year, I've, uh, I've I bought a warehouse about a couple of Ks down the road and I'm going to turn that into Fat Cave 2.0. And uh, that should be really special because I'll be able to get a car in there and move a camera around it and shoot um, more involved, more interesting packages more often for you guys. So uh, that would be that would be the medium-term plan and hopefully that'll be just one more way in which I can say, fuck you, 2020, fuck you very much, you know, and uh, be gone with you. <laughs> and, and the memory, may you sink to the bottom of the Marianas Trench and never resurface. So I think that's kind of the minimum result I want out of 2020. How about you? Doug Stubb says, hello, just joined. Live call with grandkitties down there, nonstop wanker land. <laughs> There's so much of that. I, I'm still struggling with nonstop wanker land. I'm, I, I, I'm not going to speculate. Um, have you gave us your pot index yet? It's kind of a bloke thing pissing up the wall like the pot index. I'm drawing a complete blank on that. Um, if you, if you want to fill me in there, like let me know, dude. But um, I can't help you with that. Not enough information. Taz Ransom says, at John, that must be me, can you explain car values from an insurance company's perspective, given that the car yard and private sales values seem much higher? Surely yards and private sales are what forms the market value. I don't know what yardstick they use for market value right and i think market value is a dud way to get car insurance because knowing how insurance companies operate it's going to be the lowest number they can find right so if i was you and i had a car that 
was worth a significant amount of money and meaning a significant amount of money to you. If the insurance payout matters and the difference of this much or that much as a percentage, 10%, 20%, if that matters, do it at an agreed value because then there's no toss arguing, right? The agreed value is whatever whatever it says on the policy for the next 12 months and they can just suck it up, okay? Whereas there's so much arguing the toss with agreed value. Uh, sorry, with um, market value. And uh, that'd be something that, uh, simple way to protect yourself, right? Just go with greed value. Kevin Mack, real name, Kevin, very dangerous, a bold move, but respect. Hi, John, looking at purchasing new V6 Amarok with manual transmission, knowing Volkswagen can be difficult with issues. Is consumer law enough protection if the vehicle is kept only whilst under warranty? Well, these are all different things, right? Consumer law is kind of, a big stick, but it's an expensive stick to wield if the company that you're trying to get a, a a rightful resolution from, if they're prepared to be abject bastards because they can carry more cost of abject bastardry than you can, right? So Volkswagen's quite bad at that in my view. There's too much evidence uh, that I can see of them treating people badly and consumer law will protect you, but only if you've got 10 or 20,000 bucks to throw at a serious problem. And the warranty is only really a promise that the manufacturer makes to you in addition to your rights uh, under consumer law. So a promise from an immoral bastard is probably not worth as much as a promise from somebody you could trust to do the right thing. So the other thing about Amarok is, of course, the safety rating, which when you look at it is five star, but it's five star from 2011 when that vehicle was tested. And the bottom line with that is, of course, it doesn't even have airbags in the back seat, dude. You know, so it's really, it would struggle to get three stars today. I don't know exactly what the protocol is there. You could work it out if you if you had to, and there'll be a few pegs in the ground you could put for limiting factors, but three stars maximum, right? So if you're going to put kitties in the back of this Amarok, I'd suggest buy something else, buy something more modern that was tested in the past five years and hang your head in shame and cap for making this issue so difficult for ordinary people to get their brains around because you could have made it simpler and you botched it. So shame on you. Personal opinion. Uh, I hate this word. Sobriquet. Sobriquet. 71. See, I'm not afraid to have a crack at that and make dick of myself mispronouncing something. Um, I must ask John, which would be me, um, where do you source the Ming Mole videos? They look like they're customized just for you and me. Ha <laughs> ha! And Mike Stand, you can go and get mm, as well. Well, yeah, you can invite other people to do that. But I found Mike quite entertaining, but each to his own. And obviously, that's only a personal opinion of yours. And we wouldn't want to make a defamatory imputation against Mike because he has been of such entertaining value to the program previously. Um, the Ming Moles are not customised, they're off the rack. And I do mean rack. They're, because that is one of the selection criteria. I actually use a stock video library called Storyblocks. And they have endless videos of everything. So if you want beach volleyball, then hey. If you want bikini on the beach, then prepare to waste hours. It's not like it's a, it's not a burden, right? But you can, you can go through hours of bikini on the beach to find just the right flavour of bikini for a Ming Mole on the beach vacation kind of clip for you. And this is the sort of burden that I shoulder without complaint in the background. I just suck it up like a big boy and get on with it because I'm in the entertainment and information business, 
right? And you matter to me. And that's why I do this kind of thing so diligently. So there's that. Um, moving right on, Husey and Annalise says, got a new Serato Sport. And Husey and Annalise are regulars too, and I'd just like to acknowledge that. Uh, Husey's probably more of a regular than Annalise. And I don't know what this business is about sharing a YouTube channel. I guess it makes it simpler from the point of view of um, deleting your browsing history after, uh, just before you drop dead. That's a good pro tip, I think, you know, for your relatives and that. I guess if you've got a joint one, then there's uh, much less likelihood of unpalatable conduct being uh, uncovered post-mortem, isn't there? Uh, anyway, Husey and Annalise says, uh, I got a new Serato Sport a few months back. What's with the throttle thing? that you have to push down harder with a click at the bottom of the accelerator pedal just to get to full throttle. I think that's probably an emissions thing or maybe it's a fuel efficiency thing. But a lot of cars have got that and some of it's more perceptible than others. Uh, I guess they just don't want you to use full throttle particularly often because, say, it's going to drink a lot of petrol and you might come back and complain about that. But I don't really know. And when you know it's there and you want full throttle, just... Go for it. Wait for the click and enjoy turning hydrocarbons into noise and speed. It's been one of my favourite things for decades now. Anthony Vergona says, Hi, John. Do you think Mark 7 Volkswagen Golf GTI G DSG 35,000 kilometres is a good first car? I am worried about the reliability. What are some of the common problems that may come up? Well, the bottom line is in about 2014 or 2015, it's all a blur, right? But about that long ago, Volkswagen made this. This is before Dieselgate, okay? So it might have been even 2013. They kind of had this proclamation. They said, we will be the number one car maker in the world by 2018, okay? And prior to this proclamation, they were actually pretty reliable and a pretty good company in my view, right? And this was some sort of high-level management statement to appease the shareholders and make them seem special in Wolfsburg, I guess. And the only problem with that is the actuaries got involved and they said, well, shit, dudes, we don't have enough inventory. We haven't got enough vehicles. So they went on this product R&D offensive, okay, to generate the requisite inventory to put a finger in each one of the holes in the dike so that they could get to number one car maker in the world by 2018. The only problem with that was inevitably R&D corners got cut and reliability went off a cliff. Uh, so there's that. And uh, then Dieselgate hit and they've been sort of playing catch up ever since. And the bottom line is reliability is a problem, but what's even worse is the calibre of support. So... Golf GTI is a lovely car. It's a beautiful car to look at. It's a beautiful car to drive. And if it were reliable, and even more so if the support you got was marketplace average or better, then yeah, dude, good first car if you love driving and you love that Euro thing. But the support's a real problem. And first cars, people often don't have very much cash. And the solution to these problems is likely to be expensive for you. So I'd say, no, it's probably a bad choice, although I understand why you lust after it, mate. Craig McIntosh now says, Hi, John, love your work. Thank you, Craig. I uh, got a VW Arteon. Uh, settle down. Settle down, John. Which I love the look, hate the ride quality and general quality of the car. I'm thinking of switching to a new BMW 330i. Is that a good move? Okay, so my experience of BMW is that... Um, their quality is slightly better than the other two premium German car makers. Certainly, 
whenever an owner of a BMW with a legitimate problem has reached out to me and I've reached out to them on behalf, I've reached out to BMW on behalf of the owner, then BMW has acted fairly quickly to turn that frown upside down. And I cannot say the same thing about the customer care aspect at the highest level for Mercedes-Benz and Audi, right? So yeah, exchanging a Volkswagen of that nature for a BMW 330i would be a good call in my view. BMWs are good cars. The brand is fairly true to its ethos of ultimate driving machine. And I've really enjoyed driving most of the BMWs I've driven. I think some of them are a little bit cynical. Some of the cheaper BMWs, you know, maybe X1s and things of that nature. Entry level, um, entry level three series reminds me of a bit of a sort of once over, a once over lightly taxi kind of thing, you know, but Anything with a bit of class about it, 330i would be quite all right. Uh, the only thing is, obviously, these are premium automobiles and they attract a premium price, so there's that. Uh, Jason Field says, independent mechanic trumps dealership servicing every day of the week, but I must say I have a vested interest. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Jason. I like dealing with my independent mechanic because, A, I've known him for years. He is uh, portable vis-a-vis the brands. I might have a Renault. I did have a Renault at one stage and I had Subarus and I've had Hyundais and I've had Kias and I've got a Mitsubishi now and he's compatible with all of those. And when I talk to him, I know that he's not bullshitting me. I know he's actually had his hands on my car and I know that he knows how I drive and therefore he can say to me things like, okay, 12-month servicing interval, but your brakes have got about six months left on them. So why don't you come back and say, end of February, beginning of March, it's going to cost you about this much. And I go, yeah, dude, thanks. Whereas if I'd gone to the frigging dealership, I'd get to talk to a concierge who's got no idea, hasn't had his hands on the car, and they've got 12-month servicing, like the protocol is 12-month servicing. So if the brakes are absolutely not serviceable for the next 12 months, but perhaps they're serviceable for the next eight months, right? Then they get turfed and you get the big bill now. And that's just how that rolls. So, you know, dealerships want your servicing business. Car companies want dealership servicing business. To make that viable, to make that attractive to you, then I really think what they have to do is they need to change the way they do business with servicing. And they need to be uh, more personable and they need to be more cost competitive. And they just need to have a a sea change in the way they treat their servicing customers. And then if they were to do that, then obviously you'd go to them because they've got the specialist knowledge. But I see independents doing a better job every day of the week, particularly ones who are recommended to you by someone you trust based on uh, a long personal association. Now, if someone gives you that kind of rec- uh, re- recommendation, it matters. It means something. Um, let's move right on now. We've got... Uh, Mopar 340 says, thoughts on the Jeep Gladiator. I bought one recently and love it. Well, I'm glad you did, okay? And I'm glad you love it. But Gladiator's a three-star shitbox on safety, okay? And when they when they did the IIHS um, small overlap crash test on Wrangler, then it rolled after the test. I can't remember the last time a vehicle rolled after a small overlap crash test, right? That's disgraceful. The reason it's three stars is not because they crashed it, it's because they did the deep dive technically and decided that the Wrangler rating was applicable to Gladiator. And uh, here in Australia, then um, 
Gladiator is ridiculously expensive too. So if you bought it in Australia, then congratulations. But you'd want to really love it because I think you paid way over the odds. And I understand the icon factor and I understand that it's a pretty special Jeep, but I just can't in good conscience recommend Jeep to most people. Liam Hernan now says, just purchased myself a Toyota Blade Master, e.g. Japanese imports are becoming interesting choice with the new uh, regulations allowing some very interesting cars to be imported. Will we see more? I guess we will inevitably see more of that kind of thing. But one thing I can absolutely assure you is that the Australian car industry and its grubby little lobby group in Canberra, the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, will fight every one of those regulations tooth and nail. Because as they see it, every one of those grey imports, that's a car that they don't get to sell. And there's nothing that mob hate more than shoring up that new car cartel-like uh, structure that they enjoy in this country. And that robs you and me of real competition, which is in my opinion at least, their underlying objective. So there's that. Now uh, let's talk to Mr. Miyagi. And I love your work in the first Karate Kid movie. I'm surprised you're still with us, Mr. Miyagi. But Sensei, let's see how we go. Hey, John, how do you think the Genesis brand will fare in Australia? I'm interested in a G70, but I am concerned about after-sales support. Hashtag Mals. Don't be concerned about the support. I think the support will be excellent for Genesis. I really do. Um, it'll be like Hyundai Support Squared because they do want it to be a premium experience. The, uh, Hyundai, which is really Genesis rebranded, right? Genesis is the premium brand of Hyundai. They understand customer support. They understand consumer law. They're one of the best car makers in Australia for customer support. I have no commercial relationship with Hyundai whatsoever, but I have seen them go above and beyond the call of duty to support customers that they didn't technically have to support, but they did it in good faith. And certainly I have never seen them shirk a consumer law entitlement, right? And Genesis will be like that, only the Genesis mindset is this is a premium product. We've got a take on Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Audi, Volkswagen, uh, brands of that nature. And we know that we haven't got the cachet. One of the easy wins for us is service and support and that concierge-like experience, right? So that's why in the major centres they'll pick your car up and drop it off for a service, things like that, okay? The... Um, the reliability is likely to be pretty good too because Hyundai, Kia and Genesis share R&D facilities and obviously they have similar sorts of R&D standards that underpin the product. So there's that. So I, I don't think you need to be concerned about that. And G70 is a very nice looking car, like a grown up person's stinger really, isn't it? You know, uh, I also know there's a bit of a glut of G70s at the moment. So you could contact me via the website if you want to take advantage of that. I know the right person to talk to at Genesis, at Genesis there. And uh, we could put your people in touch with their people and hopefully beautiful things will happen there. But obviously that's outside of my normal car buying arrangement because Genesis does not op operate dealerships. And uh, uh, that side of my business relies on the relationships with uh, actual dealers to get the sales across the line. So this would be like an addendum to that that I'm kind of developing at the moment. So that uh, that glut of G70s, there's, uh, there's a saving of at least a GST at the moment, I think, on uh, any of those leftover G70s. New ones on the way, obviously. So 
Let us move on briefly. We'll do another few minutes of this until my voice completely carks it and my brain turns abjectly to mush. Uh, Nikolay Konop says, John, what do you think about Jaguar lately as well as the latest F-Type? Well, Jaguars are beautiful cars. They just are. Jaguar is like sullied the way Volvo, Land Rover and Aston Martin are sullied, you know, because they were all part of the Ford empire when Ford stood on the brink of implosion during the GFC, okay? And Ford had a fire sale. They got rid of what it called the Premier Automotive Group. They sold Aston Martin to a consortium of Middle Eastern investors. They got Jaguar and Land Rover and sold them to the Indian industrial conglomerate known as Tata, and they sold Volvo to the Chinese. So they got rid of all of that, but those brands still struggle with the taint of Ford, right? And Jaguar was never any good reliability-wise. And here in Australia, there's also the leftover dealer network of Jaguar and Land Rover stretching back to the year dot. And frankly, they do not inspire me with confidence in relation to how well they might support you if you have a problem. So beautiful premium cars, uh, many of them like... uh, the, uh, the the SUVs. Terribly harsh ride for an SUV, those Jaguar SUVs. Anyway, um, just the support's going to be a problem, right? And obviously they're expensive things. So beautiful car. You're obviously going to turn a few heads in one if that's the kind of thing that lights your wick, but I wouldn't be counting on A-grade support or even premium brand style support, which would be so easy for them to fix. And I'm so amazed that they're so thick that they have not yet done that. So Let's talk now to Norman, normal, <laughs> normal human. Is there such a thing? Mr. and Mrs. Human, you must be so proud with your normal son. Here in Retardistan, I love the way some Retardistanis have adopted this, right? Like without question, like Shitsville, Retardistan, Sheepshagistan, we're all mates, okay? I love Retardistan. You've got guns and gun ranges. You can, it's just beautiful. I have learned never to take your vehicle to a place with a religious name, e.g. Christian Brothers. <laughs> well, there you go. That might be one way of choosing a servicing provider. Who knows? It takes all sorts. Greetings to all of my loyal listeners in Retardistan. I love your work. I'm sorry about the orangutan. Uh, perhaps that will end soon. Hopefully it will. David Jenkins now. How many numpties keep passing the same keep passing the same dumb as question over and over? Well, see, David, it's it's not the same question to them. It's the first time they've asked it. This was a thing on Talkback Radio, right? You used to get asked the same questions over and over. And it's not like only a small number of listeners, viewers, whatever, have a complete compendium, you know, the aggregated works of every show. To some people, they've just dialed in now. They've seen, oh, this dude's live. Let's see what it's like. And he asks a question at the top of his mind, which is a question that you've answered six trillion times. The other thing, incidentally, on Talkback Radio was like, oh, good day, John. Love, how you going? <laughs> Never ask the host how he's going, okay? Because it's not moving the show forward, okay? Love your show. Love your show. Thanks. First time, long time listener, first time caller, right? This is like ticking every box of what not to say because we're not going forward in time. We're not moving the show forward. Show stalled on the grid with meaningless questions over and over. And you can't be rude. You can't be saying, get to the point, dude. You've just got to, g'day, John, how are you going? Good, right? 
You never ask how you're going back if you're the host. If you get that back, the guy's an amateur. Anywho, it's just like that. So, you know, questions are just, people ask questions all the time. They're the same questions. What car should I, what's the best ute, mate? What's the best seven-seat SUV, mate? Mate, mate, I've got to buy a hatchback for me daughter who's learning to drive and I haven't got more than 20 grand, you know? Like, these are the questions. I spend a day and a half answering them every week. Like, I, I just get a big bottle of red wine and a glass and I just answer questions. It's fantastic at the end. Um, Mario Garrido says, Hi, John. Greetings from Spanish Stan. Spanish Stan. Love your videos. I have a blast watching them. What's your expert opinion on H2 plus O2 electrolysis injection technology for diesel engines? Keep it up, dude. Okay. Electrolyzing water under the bonnet of a car using electricity derived from the vehicle's electrical system is a kind of thermodynamic fraud. It cannot work. It cannot deliver any kind of benefit. Any person who went to university and studied first-year physics knows that this is a thermodynamic fraud, okay? And this, of course, is why these systems do not exist under the bonnet of any car when it leaves the production line, okay? Electrolyzing water is good for only one thing, and that is starting a fire under the bonnet because most of the people doing it do not do it in uh, a robust uh, tradesman-like way, and they don't have adequate protections in place. And they're, what they're doing is they're generating water's a mixture of hydrogen and oxygen, H2O, and then you put electricity into it and you can split that up into H2, which is a gas, okay, and O2, which is a gas. So hydrogen gas and oxygen gas. And it just bubbles up, okay, and you can collect it. And yes, you can feed it into your engine. But while you're collecting it, it is the Goldilocks stoichiometric mixture. It's just looking for a spark. It's like the girl who can't say no, right? The smallest spark and it's going off, okay? It's like a little hand grenade, right? It might be a big hand grenade depending on how much volumetric capacity you've built into your system under the hood. So don't do that. It, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't derive a benefit and it can only, best case scenario, cause no harm. Worst case scenario, it'll burn your shiny new vehicle to the ground. So there's that. Um, Z. Zed Sonata says, Kia and Hyundai's are basically the same under the skin. That's correct. They share R&D at Namyang. So why develop two engines when one engine can be ported across into multiple uh, brands? I get that. Makes sense. It's one of the things that keeps the price down. So everyone often says this like it's a bad thing, but au contraire. It's good for consumers. Okay. Um, if you are picking between the two, just pick the one you like the most. There are sometimes uh, suspension differences also. Well, yeah, here in Australia, they have independent uh, suspension development teams. So ride and handling can be subtly different between uh, platform shared vehicles between Hyundai and Kia. Obviously, the other big difference is that Hyundai sells more vehicles, got more dealers, and in that sense, there's more choice. But Kia offers two additional years worth of warranty. So there's that. Uh, other than that, they are very different. There's obviously styling differences as well between them. So one of them might light your fire a bit more than the other one. And often there's a price difference either way. There might be three or four grand uh, for roughly equivalent spec levels. And it varies. Sometimes Hyundai's sharper and sometimes Kia's sharper. So you might want to factor 
excuse me, that in as well. Now, I'm going to wrap it up in a few minutes, but I uh, have appreciated your company and we'll just answer a few more questions along the way. I'll be back next Thursday at 8.30, so be part of the chat there. I'm going to work on a solution where I might even live life on the edge and take a few live calls, just like Real Talkback Radio. So let me know if you think that might be a good idea. Um, I'm just a bit... Uh, just a bit twitchy about not being in delay, right, like you are on radio, because there are community guidelines on YouTube and it might be easy for a caller to violate those and I don't know how I would deal with that in real time and still be compliant with their rules. So I'd have to cross that bridge. I might ask my minder at YouTube about that and she can go off and ask a few questions with the boys upstairs. So we'll work on that as a work in progress. Adam Williams says, John, do you have a recommendation for driver education for my 75-year-old mum? She's been licensed since the 60s, but not driven this year because of Melbourne lockdown. Uh, Dad's just passed away. I'm sorry to hear that, mate. Um, And mum's looking to get some independence. Yeah, well, that's very good of you to ask that question. It's very good of you to support your mum in this situation. I'm sure this is a challenging new time for her as well. And it's certainly been a bastard of a time to have a funeral this year because I'm sure there were more people who your dad may whose lives uh, were affected by your father in a positive way and they would have liked to have attended the funeral to um, pay their tribute to your father and uh, for everybody who's had a relative who's passed away this year this is a terribly confronting thing because memorial services tend to be final and one of my things is you know immortality is one of the best barometers of the real thing of immortality, which is people's lives who you've made a difference to. They come to your memorial service, right? So being limited to whatever it is, 20 people or 10 people or something, what a bastard. And I'm very sorry you've had to endure that. And for all of you who've been in that position who I uh, who, who haven't communicated with me, but there's been plenty of that this year, my heart goes out to you as well because, you know, that's just another little glassy cherry on the icing of the cake of the worst friggin' year ever. Um, Anyway, what I'd suggest you do there, Adam, is I'd go to the local motorist type association like the NRMA or the RACV or the RACQ because they will have a bunch of people who go out and test uh, elderly drivers like my father's going to turn 85 this year and he's got to go for his very first driving test after whatever it was, Christ knows, age 17, right? And uh, the uh, NRMA, in our case, because we're in New South Wales, they've got a fleet of testers for elderly drivers. And you can just say, hey, before you test me, can you book me in for a refresher? And uh, these people can give your mum a once-over and they can sort of uh, cherry-pick things that she might be uh, doing poorly and might easily improve uh, because nobody wants to see an old person's mo- mobility taken from them, but we don't want to see them be a liability behind the wheel, and we certainly don't want to see a liability behind the wheel shorten their lives. We want them to be uh, as long-lived as possible and as mobile as possible for as long as possible. So that's where I'd go, Adam. I'd go to the local motorist association and recommend uh, some advice there about an appropriate testing dude. Uh, just finally now, G. Lukes says... John, for God's sake, straighten you glasses. Straighten you glasses. How much friggin' straighter do you want them, dude? Look at that. I'm I'm looking at... I've got two monitors there in case one goes down on me like that plane in Flying High. It's like having two autopilots fighting over each other. Monitor there, monitor there. Although I think this monitor makes me look shifty by looking this... I think it's much better to look that way. You don't look shifty if you do that. 
Media 101. Anyway, these glasses are straight, dude. I might have my head on crooked. That, that doesn't look straight now, but that looks a bit straight. The microphone's not straight. You know, come on. Hypercriticality, dude. I'm here on my own. I'm running a television studio on my own doing talkback calls and you've got a friggin' problem with my glasses. Shame on you. What are you, sitting there having a beer on the lounge, you know, with everybody, with all of your mates, i.e. alone? Um, who knows? Anyway, <laughs> Ian M. I'm going to end on a high note because straightening your glasses, dude, that's not the way to end a friggin' show. Ian M. says, hello, John. How long should I expect parts availability on a new vehicle, GM and Ford excluded? Reason I'm asking is there a Goldilocks point to loose the Triton Kia, etc. Um, you can absolutely count on parts for at least 10 years. And then, look, if there's enough cars in the market, like you've got a, a reasonably mainstream car, then there's going to be reasonably mainstream parts failures for those cars and even if the manufacturer is not supplying the parts some enterprising uh, independent out there is going to be sourcing parts for those vehicles so i'd suggest on mainstream cars reasonably popular mainstream cars i30s serratos commodores uh, you know, things of that nature, Mazda CX-5, Mazda 3, all of those popular cars that you see shitloads of on the road, parts availability is probably not going to be a problem for the next 15 to 20 years for brand new cars today that are selling well. So there you go. Look, I'm going to leave it there because my voice is caving in and we've been at this now for an hour and a half and all good things must come to an end ultimately. I'd really like to thank you for your support. The comments have just been overflowing as usual. Um, there's been some very kind words from m many of you, but not enough abuse, not nearly enough abuse. So do work on that in future episodes. I'm going to be doing another one of these next Wednesday, uh, next Thursday evening as well at 8 30 so please do join me for that as well and i'm thinking about doing a shorter one uh, maybe on a monday night maybe just a wrap up of automotive news and we'll answer a few questions for half an hour 45 minutes please let me know in the YouTube comments feed directly th through the next week, whether you think that's a decent call or not. And if it is, I'll do my best to get that up and running as well on a Monday. But that'll be more news and information with a few questions at the end. Whereas I think what we'll do is reserve the Thursday night special here for uh, more of a uh, more of a Q and A where you drive the agenda and I see how I go as the pinball reacting to the the questions that you spin up for me. So if you're happy with that, I'm certainly happy with that. Thank you very much for your support. Thursday, the 22nd of October. I'm going to sign off now and. I will see you in a pre-recorded sense from just over there in the fat cave uh, over the next week or so, and we'll be back doing this next Thursday. Thanks very much for your company. Have a good night, and fuck you very much, 2020. I mean that most sincerely. <laughs>